Now, welcome back to another new weekly endoscopy podcast. My name is Björn Ramaken. I'm an endoscopist in Leeds who, together with our news team, has been trawling through 21 medical journals to find you the most interesting endoscopy-related news this week. Uh, the titles we scanned is on the website, which <laughs> is currently under construction, and on uh, social media. If you think that we have missed the journal out, please let us know so that it can be included. Now, the references which we mentioned will be listed on our website and also on social media, of course. The idea is that if you find something of interest, then look up the actual full paper. The devil is in the detail, after all. Now, all of us on the news team are particularly grateful to Pentax, who has been the first industry partner to support our educational endeavor with a grant. A huge thanks to Pentax Medical. This wouldn't have been possible without your support, guys. Thanks a lot. This time, we've had a lot of publications related to the impact of COVID on endoscopy services around the world. Now, the number of endoscopies carried out, of course, fell everywhere, it seems, between March and June in particular, as the COVID epidemic diverted resources and patients away from our endoscopy units. Vulnerable patients were, of course, uh, kept away as there was a real danger of actually catching COVID during the trip to the endoscopy unit. Now, in the UK, we decided to maintain emergency and essential endoscopy procedures. There was some initial confusion. Some units stopped doing pegs, for example, until the BSG announced that it did record the placement of feeding tubes as an essential part of the care pathway. Paradoxically, the NHS England continued to send out fit tests as part of the bowel cancer screening program for a period, even though the bowel cancer screening colonoscopist, who actually had to be available to stuff the service, were actually away looking after medical inpatients and COVID patients and had stopped doing their screening colonoscopies. Now, every country realized that we had to triage referrals. In the US, there was a four-level triage system of urgency. At the most urgent end of the spectrum, we had things like GI bleeding, cholangitis, imaging suggested of cancer and uh, infection requiring drainage, and what they called significant acute symptoms. This wasn't really further specified, but I guess included things like dysphagia. Less urgent indications included weight loss, iron deficiency anemia, and patients with a positive fit test. In all countries, screening and surveillance largely fell by the wayside, it seemed. Now, here in the UK, the recommendations were broadly similar. Endoscopy was still available for patients admitted with emergency upper GI bleeding, bowel obstructions, stents, ERCP, PEGS, and EVT endoscopic vacuum therapy, i.e. perforations. Two-week referrals, EUS staging of cancer and resections for high-risk lesions and assessment of colitis was also considered, but it depended on local capacity. Now actually, when my colleagues headed for the wards, I stayed in the endoscopy unit together with our ERCP team. And to my surprise, I mainly ended up doing flexible sigmoidoscopies. 
It turned out to be lots of patients with suspected checkpoint inhibitor colitis, which could be really nasty, I discovered, or graft-versus-host disease, which often looked unremarkable, but was also very nasty, or acute inflammatory bowel disease. In Leeds, we even managed to maintain our resectional service, EMRs, ESDs, and polypectomies of larger lesions. And the other thing I kept on doing was esophageal dilatations. Esophageal dilatations was really part of an essential service, but it seemed cruel to leave patients not being able to swallow when a dilatation is a relatively quick procedure. Now, here in the UK, a BSG survey revealed that two-thirds of our gastroenterologists were sent to look after medical and COVID patients. About a quarter ended up being resident overnight on call in hospital, and a further quarter ended up doing non-patient-facing duties, such as mainly stuffing telephone clinics. Now, you may have noticed uh, Matt Rutter's publication in GUT a few months ago, which showed that in the UK, the overall number of endoscopies fell by a, an amazing 88%. Holland appears to have been less affected. There was a publication in Endoscopy a week ago, which quoted a 50% reduction in overall numbers of endoscopies only. In fact, in Holland, there was no fall in the number of ERCPs done compared to a 44% reduction in the UK. In the UK, there was a 58% reduction in the number of cancers diagnosed endoscopically compared with a 36% reduction in the Netherlands. Data has also been published from the US with the VA health centers showing a drop in gastroscopies of 78% and colonoscopies 93%, largely, I think, because patients were diverted to CTCs and CTs. Now, elsewhere in the US, corrective cancer screening dropped by 86%. Of course, COVID had a huge effect on training. There was a publication in Digestive Diseases and Sciences from the US showing that one-third of trainees had been seconded to non-GI tasks. In the UK, training looked even more bleak. 50% were unlikely to achieve their key training targets. And another one-third of our trainees had their subspecialty training adversely affected, such as hepatology, inflammatory bowel disease, nutrition or endoscopy. And a third of researchers had actually stopped doing their research project. There was another publication in Digestive Diseases and Sciences by Professor Sonnenberg in Oregon, he lost his composure over a silly endoscopy request during the COVID epidemic, when this precious resource became even more precious, of course. He wrote an article where he listed some of the silly requests that he had encountered. This included, for example, a request for a colonic decompression in patients with pseudo-obstruction, which we know are futile unless we manage to pull along a really wide-bore flatus tube piggybacked onto our scope. This, of course makes the procedure rather hazardous and dangerous and very difficult. Another group of silly referrals included an attempt at uh, closing fistulas between pulmonary, vascular or urogenital systems endoscopically. Of course, these attempts will probably fail. Finally, he listed futile attempts at uh, achieving hemostasis in patients with massive GI bleeding or bleeding from cancers. Of course, massive GI bleeding is better managed by our interventional angiographies and uh, oozing GI cancers 
can of course be treated by APC and it may stop the bleeding for a few hours and then it starts again relentlessly. These patients are probably better off either managed by embolization or thalidomide. Professor Sonnenberg does admit though that uh, being pulled into a rabbit hole of irrational requests is difficult. But he said that we should uh, smell a rat when we're asked to do something unusual or non-standard. Good advice. Now in the UK we were advised to triage our uh, suspected lower GI cancer referrals by CT. However, there was a study published from Guildford in colorectal disease where instead they had organized a fecal stool test, a fit test for blood. Only patients with a fit test about 10 milligram or more of blood in the stool were offered colonoscopy. This uh, reduced the demand for colonoscopy by half. And in those who then went through and underwent colonoscopy, they found a colorectal cancer in 3.7% of cases, which was actually the overall number expected to be diagnosed with cancer. A much larger Scottish study, due to be published again in colorectal disease, 16th of October, and reported on nearly 5,000 patients referred for colonoscopy. They reported that in the 45% of patients who had a fit test, above 10 or 9 patients had colorectal cancer. In particular, it was patients with a positive fit test and anemia who were the most likely to have a cancer. We also had um, an article in the World Journal of Gastroenterology highlighting that age was also an important contributor to risk. They put the age threshold of an increased risk of bowel cancer as at uh, 70 or above. Of course we all ended up uh, wondering about the most cost-effective way of dealing with the epidemic. In the journal Endoscopy a cost-effectiveness uh, analysis uh, was done on the different strategies. They concluded that when there is lots of COVID about, the most cost-effective strategy was to routine check all patients for COVID before their endoscopy, and then at the time of the procedure, use high-risk PPE. However, the cheapest way of dealing with an outbreak was to simply use high-risk PPE without any pre-testing in all cases. Now, with the endoscopy rooms standing empty, I was glad to see the endoscopists filling their free time clarifying some facts about the use of water at colonoscopy, so-called water immersion or water exchange colonoscopy. There was uh, an international consensus panel consisting of 55 colonoscopists from 16 countries who underwent a three-round of a Delphi review process to confirm that water immersion colonoscopy, that by the way is when water is infused during the intubation but then removed during extubation, is actually more comfortable than we just intubate with air or CO2. Water exchange was even better. A water exchange colonoscopy, by the way, is when water is infused and the air pump is actually switched off whilst intubating. Then when you got to the cecum, you switch the air pump back on again, you remove the little bit of water that might be washing around the colon and you inflate it as normal with air or CO2. Such water exchange might take a few minutes longer than normal, but of course it improves on the state of bowel cleansing and for this reason improves views and polyp detection. It's also as comfortable as water immersion and of course more comfortable for the patient than just intubating with air or CO2. These 55 experts also commented on underwater EMR, 
and said that it allows lesions up to 2 cm to be removed and block. I would have thought lesions up to 2 cm could be removed and block the standard way. In fact, I would put the advantage of an underwater EMR that it allows difficult to lift lesions to be resected endoscopically. Now, difficult to lift lesions are, of course, local recurrences of the previous attempted resections or LST-NG lesions. They are notoriously difficult to lift. The panel also commented that the complication rates were comparable to normal EMR, but there was no agreement on the best diatherm settings when you're using underwater EMR. Now, no news update is completely without artificial intelligence. In the European Journal of Gastroenterology and Hepatology, 16th of October, an American group described an AI system scoring inflammatory bowel disease according to the Mayo score system. AI had an overall accuracy of 77%, which I guess is a start. It occurred to me though, why only plug in the endoscopic images to the AI system? Why not feed it with the CT films too, and maybe the blood results? And then you can create a more encompassing score of the patient's state of health, and perhaps even predict those who will run the risk of going on to a colectomy. And then there was a large multi-center study from China published in Clinical Gastroenterology and Hepatology, which randomized patients to having their duodenal papilla sprayed with adrenaline or placebo, in addition to the standard rectal indomethacin, which is used to reduce the risk of acute pancreatitis. There were more than 500 patients in each group, but the study closed early because there was an excess of pancreatitis in the group who had their papilla sprayed with adrenaline. The risk in this group was 8% compared to 5% when only saline was sprayed. Both groups had rectal indomethacin. This unsettled me a little bit because I, of course, use adrenaline in the EMR mixture that I use when removing polyps from the, not just the ampulla, but from the nearby duodenal wall. It reduces the risk of oozing a little bit, but perhaps also increases the risk of acute pancreatitis. Having said that, I can only recall one patient had an attack of acute pancreatitis when a polyp on the nearby duodenal mucosa was removed. This was an elderly lady who had acute pancreatitis about a month later. So it's a little bit uncertain if it was related to my polypectomy or not. Certainly from now on, I will no longer put adrenaline into the submucosal mixture, which I use to remove papillary adenomas. There was another study from China, published in Surgical Endoscopy, which compared outcomes in 45 patients who had their gastric gists removed endoscopically. You know, POET, the a submucosal tunneling technique where you make an incision in the gastric mucosa, go within the submucosal plane until you reach the gist, which of course is arising usually from the muscle propria layer, remove it and then retrieve it through the tunnel and finally clip the tunnel closed. Now, this group was matched with an identically sized group of patients who had their gastricists removed surgically. The two groups were matched for age, sex, BMI, ASA score, size of the gist, and the precise gastric location of the gist. Those who had their gist removed endoscopically had to stay in hospital longer because a third of them had suffered a perforation during their endoscopic removal. I presume that the authors meant a symptomatic perforation requiring antibiotics, etc. Because a laparoscopic wedge excision of a gastric gist is usually 
a walk in the park, as the surgeons will say, unless perhaps if the lesion is situated on the posterior wall of the stomach. I do wonder if we need more reliable ways of closing the gastric defect before we really start doing endoscopic resection of gastric gists. Now, there was a funny study that caught my eye, published in Clinical Gastroenterology and Hepatology, which looked at the personality of a group of American endoscopists and their adenoma detection rate. Now, endoscopists who self-reported that they were probably more thorough and more conscientious than their peers were probably indeed more thorough and conscientious because their adenoma detection rate was actually higher than those endoscopists who didn't feel that they were any more conscientious than their colleagues. Now, this was a funny study because those endoscopists who said that they were particularly conscientious and thorough also much more frequently felt rushed. And of course, this is the case. When your list is running late on a Friday afternoon and the patients are piling up in the waiting room and the endoscopy nurses is trying to jolly along to finish before the hour is up, these people probably did feel rushed. I often feel rushed myself in the endoscopy room. And the task is to maintain quality in spite of all these distractions. Now, predictably, the same study found that there was no link between financial incentives being in any way something that drives American endoscopists to finding polyps. And of course, that's the case, because to achieve this, you would have to pay endoscopists per adenoma found, wouldn't you? And finally, there were several papers on the topic of serrated polyps. There was a study from Korea published in Clinical Gastro and Hepatology which looked into their endoscopy database, which must have been quite detailed because it included information on the patient's smoking and drinking history. And they reported that there was a strong link between smoking for 20 years or more and having serrated polyps, particularly larger serrated polyps. And I think I will add that to my clinical practice. And when I see serrated polyps in a patient who's a smoker, I will tell him or her that the reason they got these polyps is probably because they smoke and they really should stop. Now, finally, I must admit that I don't really like sessile serrated polyposis syndrome. In part, this is because I can never remember the definition. It seems to change every few years. But it's also because it's a somewhat nebulous condition. There's no linked mutations and there is often also adenomatous polyps. In, in up to 80% of cases, there's a mixture of serrated and adenomatous polyps. There's clearly more to this condition than we currently understand. Now, the real reason for my dislike of this syndrome is that if you apply the WHO criteria, about one in a hundred patients on any bowel cancer screening program will end up being eligible for surveillance. And that would, of course, be a massive surveillance caseload. Whilst we don't have any, as far as I know, prospective evidence that this is a more cost-effective use of our spare resource than simply leaving people on a fit testing bowel cancer screening program every two years or so. Anyway, my little moan was triggered by the 2019 update to the WHO criteria of sesalcerated polyp syndrome. There's a commentary on this in the most recent additional gastroenterology. Now, the new definition does try to rein in the criteria a little bit by saying that only serrated polyps 5mm or larger in size should be counted. But now we start counting the 
serrated polyps in the sigmoid rather than before it was the descending colon. So to bring up to date, the new WHO guideline is to look for five or more serrated polyps proximal to the rectum. They should be at least five millimeter in size and at least two of them should be 10 millimeter in size. The second diagnostic criteria is to have more than 20 serrated polyps of any size distributed through the large bowel with at least five being proximal to the rectum. And that concludes this week's news review. I hope you enjoyed it and I look forward to bringing you another update in a week's time. Bye for now. Our Endoscopy News podcast is supported by a grant from Pentax Medical.